This podcast is made possible by DistroKid, the new standard in digital music distribution. DistroKid is the best way to get your music in Spotify, Apple Music, Pandora, and more. Even TikTok. Ask your kids. Learn more at distrokid.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. What started as a solo endeavor from band founder and frontman Ryan Lott, Sunlux has blossomed into a collaborative effort with the addition of band members Ian Chang and Rafik Bhatia. Their new release, Tomorrow, seeks to defy the confines of the traditional album release, instead choosing to put out the music in three collections over a span of time. Ryan caught up with online publisher Jeff Stanfield to discuss his process, collaboration, film scoring, and making music during a global pandemic. Enjoy. Despite the plans we make, some will walk, some will run, but as we go, we lose everyone. Yeah, man. Well, I mean, I, I do want to talk about your new record and your recording process, but, but before that, I mean, I, I, I'd love to know how did you get the bug for recording and becoming interested in, in that aspect of it in, in addition to um, you know writing music and performing yeah man we um basically i was it was when we were in college when i was in college i was in a band that was really active and we were you know we were really serious about it and um uh we had recorded an album um working in the the sort of the the sound department at, at the school this was at indiana university the recording uh, department and you know uh you know dude just kind of like did us a favor engineering it and mixing it and it you know it took forever and it was like weirdly it like wound up being expensive even though everything was supposed to be free and it was just you know it was just kind of like but at the same time it was absolutely thrilling to to have a record you know um and um so you know definitely got the bug at that point of like having this artifact of your your creative work that was like undeniable. This is physical, back then it was a CD, you know, this physical CD. Um, and the process, but the, the process of recording it felt so, um, you know, felt so clinical. Um, and um, when it came time to do another project with the band, I was like, yo, we gotta figure out how to do this ourselves. Um, and we did the we did the craziest stuff, man. Um, we we recorded to multiple um, uh, uh, like devices at the same time, um, which caused like all kinds of drift problems. Like we we used like the audio input of like a PC, um, a DAT machine, um, and like a couple other like random like handheld devices or something like that all at once to like track like six channels of drums <laughs> oh my god so, so you pull in you know you pull all that in and like you know we didn't know anything so it was like oh yeah we'll just we'll just like line up 
I'll just, we'll just line it up and then you press play. And then like 20 seconds later, you're like, why is everything flaming? <laughs> you know? And then it's like, whoa, this is crazy. <laughs> so, um, we did stuff like that, but we made it work, you know? And it was like, we got, um, I uh, personally, and, and basically I was at kind of at the helm of making it happen. And I was the synth guy. So I was already kind of like, um, the guy who was like plugged in and, you know, recording his stuff direct and, you know, and I, basically I wound up assembling this whole thing and making it work and as cumbersome and 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 as absurd as the process was I was like completely I completely loved it and I felt right away that there was a symbiosis between creating and recording um that they were the same thing um as opposed to in the past where you know whether it was high school high school bands or that first experience with that I had with this band in college um, it felt like such a decoupled, it was so decoupled from, uh, th- those two were so decoupled. There was the, the creating and the performing, um, and, you know, uh, and then there was, t- there was the recording and they, they, they was, there was an unhappy, it was always an unhappy marriage, you know? Right. Uh, but suddenly I was at the helm of this, like, you know, very humble project, but, um, could sense how powerful the, uh, the, the results could be when they those two things came into alignment and then basically from there it was like oh and then i was just pulling in i was just sampling cds and then i was beginning to like kind of attack music from the from the um electron in the in the kind of direct uh in the digital realm like direct sampling from cds back when like os9 could like you could you could snag like tiny little pieces of cd uh of like a track from a cdr um through like an os like utility um um my sampling was always in the digital realm like that um never uh almost never like from a from a turntable needle or a tape deck or anything like that right and what what platforms were you working in oh man so i'm such a weirdo um so the only DAW I use is uh, Digital Performer. <laughs> it's, it's still to this day. It's still. Yeah, yeah a lot of people uh, do. You'd and be it is so powerful and amazing. Um, recently, they've changed their infrastructure to make it um, even more powerful in some ways, but it actually is kind of crippling to my um, workflow. And so I'm I'm exploring other options. In fact, I was just like emailing with UAD today about like some of the capabilities of Luna and things, restrictions that they're, um, you know, um, like for example, with Luna, the, um, the, you know, UADs like new DAW. Um, yeah. it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. It's, it's really amazing. One of the profound limitations though, for me, for, for, of the software is that you can't host video, so you can't use it to score a picture. Um, and that's kind of like my bread and butter. Um, so, um, I won't be able to get too deep until they, um, add that capability. You know, who's a big, uh, digital performer, uh, user is Juana Molina. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, you know what? I, I remember hearing that. Um, I remember, yeah, I remember hearing that at one point. I forgot about that. I mean, man, it is an amazing tool for scoring, especially cause it, you can, I won't bore you with <laughs> bore you with DP like totally irrelevant DP knowledge, but y- y- there's something called chunks, um, and you can um, it's like having multiple sequences open in the same project um, in the same yeah in the same session. You can have like 
totally unrelated, what's called chunks. Um, and each chunk is its own sequence, its own mix window, its own everything. Um, and, and basically you can, when you're scoring a film, a lot of times you're using uh, multiple versions of the same, um, you know, you're using like you, slightly different versions of the same kind of segment of music. Um, like reusing cues over and over again, but kind of like adapting them each time. And what's fa fascinating about chunks is you can have like all the different iterations like right there before you can even open them up together at the same time and cut and paste audio and MIDI between chunks, like something you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to do in uh, any other DAW. Yeah, that's cool. Um, and it makes the workflow for scoring like it's really elegant. Um, I also think that there's something to be said about the connection between our visual input and our, uh, our you know, our audio output. Um, if every, if basically everyone um, is looking at the same two or three uh, graphic user interfaces while making audio, it has to have a conforming effect, right? It's like if everyone is writing a poem if everyone out there writing a poem is while they're doing it is looking at the Mona Lisa, um, let alone something as, as heinous as like a Pro Tools interface, like let's even call it something beautiful like the Mona Lisa. Um, you know, this it's gonna be conforming. You know, it's not it's not the same uh, it's not the same art form. One's visual, one's you know text, but it's it's got to have a conforming effect. So, part of me is kind of like there's like a rebellion there's a rebellious spirit in me that like really wants to like be in dp because no one else is you know just to kind of further that that concept you know i just was like going through the archives for tape op and i came across this article by oz fritz and it was this thing about you know uh this incredible new piece of outboard you know hardware uh that i use on every session but what, what he's talking about is using art as a as an influencer in the studio and um, oh, yeah. that's immediately what 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 you just said made me think of. I need that. I need that so hard right now. Well, you and you kind of touched on it. You're already doing it a little bit by just talking about the influence of the visual on music. And yeah, but I also kind of need to practice what I preach because right now I'm in in a sort of displaced uh, studio situation. I mean, I'm I'm renting an office and it's it's well positioned in the building and it's it's kind of it's it's workable from an audio stamp standpoint from a kind of like logistical standpoint for me I have 24 7 access it's a safe safe place for gear um but it's uh it's the like just it's just like a heinous <laughs> a heinous uh you know rented uh, office suite um that just feels completely like uh like 1984 like corporate like office you know what I mean it's just like and I just like I desperately need to like figure out a way to make my visual environment uh feel more inspiring my my bandmate Rafiq sent me a um he was like sensing my pain and he's like like he he sent me a little um surprise gift in the mail and it was this incredible candle that smells absolutely amazing and he's like you know if you're if your visual environment sucks then like let's just at least make sure that you're there's this like flickering light in this beautiful scent that's like, you know, permeating your space. Um, and it's, it, it makes a difference. Whenever I'm working on um, like really st stuff that's really close to home for me, like uh, spiritually, 
Um, basically, this Sunlux stuff, when I'm working on it, I'm, I light that candle, and it's like, you know, it's part of the ethos of creating and recording. It's, it is a massively overlooked part of creating, and I think whether you're a painter or a or, you know, recording artist or an engineer or a film scorer or a gardener or whatever, I think that all of those things influence the way that you sort of interpret and output art um it's impossible not to because we're we're human beings and we and we're we're affected by um so many different you know we have we have all these senses so if it's too hot yeah. it's going to do one thing i mean yeah and we we were acclimated to giving primacy to certain senses when really um you know uh, our our physiology isn't you know our brains will adapt to that uh insistence but our physiology we're you know our senses are always all open yeah um, and, uh, yeah, I just need to, I need to practice what I preach. You thought bit. we were going to talk about microphones, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> My point being is like, I don't really want to talk about the saw that I use, but I love having a great saw. Mm. You know? The industry has evolved into this massive sort of plug-in DAW, like all the tools are accessible. GarageBand comes with a billion loops. It's on every single laptop. So you've got, and and I'm not taking anything away from, a lot of these pop records there's some really great pop music coming out right now but pretty much i mean if you you know there's been such right. a crazy homogenization of the music yeah it's interesting right cuz there's uh, i mean on the one hand the the landscape is broader than it ever has been um but there is a curious um value given to conformity um, in in pop music that I think it goes in I think it it goes in waves but um, there's such a desire to to make sure that your stuff sounds like everyone else's stuff at least that seems like the impression based on um, sort of the pop landscape this uh, and and it's bolstered as you said by like oh do you have the latest this you know the latest plugin um, from blah 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 you know that everyone else is using or the sa- the latest sample pack from Splice that is like the go to sample pack for the sound of now or whatever um, and you know and I understand these like you know software developers and and companies need to like you know from there's a marketing advantage to thinking like that but it but it preys on this uh, this bias to to conform um, and as if sameness was like a good litmus test for quality. Um, and I, it sounds kind of pious to say it, I guess, but I've always kind of valued the opposite, which is like, how can I make something absolutely intriguing and, and wonderful and satisfying in a way that's still feels like quote unquote home for people that has a familiarity to it, that has like an approachable, like, warm embrace quality but at the same time is completely unlike anything you've heard before um or enough unlike anything you've heard before that you still feel like you're on this wonderful adventure in a foreign land you know Let's talk a little bit about um, 
the the new Son Lux record. Um, yeah. The um, you know, which is called Tomorrows, and there's a couple questions that you know. A, I wanted to talk about how how you made the record and how you collaborated, but I thought because you started out that project as as a solo project for yourself, and you mm-hmm. released at least several records as. Mm-hmm. Yeah, under that solo, moniker, solo but but you, they were you. Um, and then you know Ian and Rafik um, mm-hmm. joined the band, and so I was kind of curious, like for you, somebody that's done everything in the past, how do you start to collaborate effectively? How does that feel? And um, you know, and what was the process of making this new record? Because to me, it's it sounds like there's so much of your film scoring that has been integrated mm. into this and it feels like it's 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 straddling that line and this is just my opinion mm. of course but mm-hmm. it straddles that line between something that's more cinematic yeah that's that's true yeah yeah for sure there's there's a there's a kind of like oh that that sounds like a film cue or that sounds like we've gone into into like some sci-fi movie or we've gone into some like dystopian you know uh emotive uh drama (laughs) um the record has so much more space than i feel like some of your previous releases thank you yeah that's one of our that was definitely one of our goals um and that's part of the reason why we chose a multi-volume format so technically the 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 album is not called tomorrow's it's called tomorrow's volume one because um it's the first of a three-volume record um we felt at the we we had a growing feeling as 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 the material was developing for this project that that the that the album format was going to fail us um that we were growing out of it Um, what what does that mean exactly well i mean the question started to emerge is sunlux a band that makes songs only um and then the natural extension of that is is sunlux a band that just makes albums um full of songs um and we're kind of feeling like no like we're something else um and we don't have to stop doing that but we certainly don't have to think of ourselves um, with holding this sacred format, um, sacred. <laughs> I mean, it is a sacred format, but do we have to be so sacrosanct about it? You know. Um, well, what's what, the alternative? What? Well, the alternative is what? What? How about we we generate a season of work and we let that work evolve organically, based on our cumulative urges, our the catalytic um you know our the chemical reactions of our ideas together and just and the inertia of our of our lives um create a body of work that doesn't necessarily conform to something that's between 35 and 50 minutes (laughs) like yeah yeah (laughs) and then and and then we go out on the road and you know play those songs for a year and a half and then come back and do again like you know, there's nothing wrong with that, and we've done that, and it's that that's a that is a way to do it. Um, but um, as our urgings to liberate ourselves from that 
uh, slammed up against a global pandemic that forbade um, uh, a regular tour cycle um, in the near future, uh, it felt like kismet. It felt like this was the universe, you know, uh, you know, saying, or at least the untamed forces of the things that we could not control were, were actually aligning with um, this concept that we were starting to develop, which was a multi-volume release of this body of work. So, so the way that it came about is, um, one of my practices, generally speaking, is when I get to the edge, the end of a long project, um, I give myself rather than take a break. Basically, I give myself the freedom to create without the bonds of deadline, purpose, um, or you know, client input um, or outside direction. Right? It's just let me make whatever the hell I want to make, and for as long as I can sustain that. And specifically, what I love the most probably is starting. I love starting an idea. So what would be the most liberating and sort of like rewarding experience to to give myself for having trudged through the lethargy of of completing a, a project? And it's always that that's always the hardest part of a project is just like getting that thing done. You know, it's yeah. like <laughs> the mixing and like it's like it's like all the oh, fixing and the mixing and the mastering and the artwork and the press and all like this whole like there's like this whole big machine kind of that starts to creep in around the art making but your art making urges aren't stopping so you also have to like subdue those new creative urges that belong to what is next in order to preserve the integrity of what is now or in the case of finishing a record what is yesterday um, you're caught in the now of between what you want to be doing now, which ultimately will be defining the next chapter and what you have already done. And really all you're trying to do is get that thing birthed. Um, it's fully made in the womb. You just got to get it out. And it's, you know, it's a lot of work. So, um, so I give myself the liberty to every single day to just start. But I also kind of give myself the rule that on day two, I'm not allowed to go back to day one because I have to remind myself I'm giving myself the ability to start. So on day two, I start again. And on day three, I start again. On day four, etc. So at the end of day 10, um, I had 10 starts for songs. Um, and I'm talking about 10 days from turning in the Masters of Brighter Wounds, which we turned in in 2017. So I'm speaking to you in September 2020, three years ago, um, roughly to, you know, to the week, um, we started the Tomorrow's Volumes. Um, so this has been long in formation and it's still in formation. Um, but basically we developed a pile of about 35 viable, valid ideas um, all investigated to a degree, some investigated really heavily with lots of tracking of various instruments and improvisations, some barely, you know, emerging from some MIDI data, um, you know, in DP. <laughs> um, you know, the whole, the full gamut. 
Um, and some developed really late in the game and some developed like really early on and then just kind of stayed put for a long time. And um, so the latest mixes um, we are working with right now, you know, of the, the full, considering the full three volumes, um, some of them are, uh, you know, uh, early 2019, you know, it was like the last time, you know, a couple of them were ever even touched. So this is this is very much a multi-volume album in development, and it's exciting to release it. It's kind of like an improvisation. Yeah, I mean, it sounds it sounds very liberating in, in a lot of ways to be oh, yeah, to know that you know it's sort of this ongoing uh, thing, and just to be able to finish it and be like, yeah, there's more to come, and we're gonna release this, and then yeah, it you know what it's like. It's like getting on stage and as an improviser and not knowing what what's gonna happen. You know, you, the commitment is made to get on stage, you, you start playing, you know. You get through the first, you know, third of the song and you know you have ideas about the next third and the third after that, but you really don't know how it's gonna go. And it's kind of like, that's what we're doing as a band. Um, again, that sort of betrays the whole concept of, an, of the traditional concept of were you guys in the room together? Were you sending files back and forth, your initial seeds, and then having them do, uh, they're making their contributions, or how did that go? Yes, um, so we were fortunate in that regard. Um, we, just before, uh, really just before everything started to, to shut down, um, we had planned a really intense work week together to work on a, film score and also on a bunch of stuff for the Tomorrow's volumes. Um, and in particular, we were tracking drums and some uh, uh, some traditional Chinese percussion and uh, some uh, and some more drums, <laughs> two drummers, and also doing some arranging work and just kind of like in the cockpit sort of of, of the project, um, deciding on things together. And um, that was all scheduled and it was, I think it was the March 13th, I think was our last day together. And, and um, Ian had planned to fly to London to start a tour with Moses Sumney and Rafiq um, was planning on heading back to New York. But then shortly after that, going uh, overseas and doing some shows as well. Um, and, um, and everything kind of just started to shut down and, and, and everything started to change on a dime. And so Ian flew back to Dallas where he lives. Ian flew back to Brooklyn and hunkered down. Um, I got on a plane with my family. Um, we had already planned for my wife and son to go to Indiana Indianapolis um, for family reasons. Um, and I decided I didn't really want to get separated and have some, some weird domestic travel ban that like suddenly creep up and get separated. So I, I threw my, you know, trash can Mac and my, my most important drives. And, um, I think, I think, I think my, I think my U87 <laughs> and I, into a Pelican and I, and I got on a plane with them and, um, and I'm, that's where I'm speaking to you now from Indianapolis. I didn't return to LA, but we were fortunate that almost all of the sort of tracking that requires, um, a lot of space and a lot of gear um we had we had, we had just wrapped so what about now 
So now we we mostly just have some guitars and um, vocals. And so I'm speaking to you from the room, like through the you know vocal chain I'm using um, to record my vocals um, here in Indianapolis. Um, and I'm generally vocals, lyrics, melodic material, and just vocal aspects in general are among the last things to happen in a Sunlux track. We do things pretty diametrically different um, um, than most in that we don't really write songs and then cast them in the light of production. We sort of develop a sound world um, and work backwards to discover a song in which that, like a song that, that, that feels like it comes from that sound world. We're all like really very much sound geeks before, I mean, really maybe before anything else, we're all really, we just have a fascination with um, the raw components of sound. I think you've taken that as a launching pad, but you've certainly developed it into something that is a, the listener can latch onto and enjoy as a, as a song. I mean, hopefully that is the response, which is that these are so, like, there's not an esoteric like, web that you have to work through in order to hear the song um ultimately you know we've designed designed an estate but but we did it by starting with crafting a beautiful piece of furniture and then we built the room around that furniture and then put art on the walls and then built the hallway and then built the rest you know we worked outward the last thing we did is we kind of built the front of the house really that, that you see from the street so as a casual listener hopefully it is a beautiful house and you really think it, it's great but hopefully also you step inside it and you sense oh there's something more to it and you may not you may actually never discover that that beautiful piece of woodwork that kind of started it all up in the you know the back bedroom or something but um but you don't need to that's that's how that's how the the house came to to exist but um that's not but that's not the lens through which you have to see everything you've scored several films uh mm -hmm. mean dreams paper towns disappearance of eleanor rigby what how is your approach different between making mm. a you know what's considered a more you know your records are not mainstream but a pop focused record versus a film score um well the, the stuff i've scored the most i've done i've done those films then i've i've worked on some other ones as well and um currently scoring a couple more i the, but the majority of the scoring i've done is actually um for dance um, for I my my wife is a dancer um, and choreographer and she got me into um, writing music for dance when we first met back when we were 19 and um, I've been writing music ever since um, um, professionally and um, and it's been actually kind of the most consistent activity I've done in music um, is scoring movement, and often that's what it is. It's it's chore working with choreographers who either work, who either create movement to temp, um, or they uh, choreograph in silence, and then I'm essentially scoring their their body, scoring the movement. 
um, and just really fell in love with that process. And that was that was my segue into scoring picture. And and then I cut my teeth scoring picture, doing ads mostly for years. And that was my full-time job. And then that's what made me really fast and facile with my equipment. And also just as it was just like one composer composing etude after another um, for, you know, for years, just writing, you know, thousands of little pieces of music. Um, but each, but that's where I really started to learn about how to tell, how to like support a narrative or, or tell a story in a small amount of time. And then gradually I started to score film and, um, but ultimately, in all those cases, the goal is to serve the picture, to serve the narrative, um, whether it's the movement or, but it, you know, or the serial ad or, you know, um, Jessica Chastain like falling falling apart emotionally. Um, you you're you're serving the goal of that picture. Um, Making Sun Lux records is more of a, it's like more of a sacred space for me personally, um, because I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm at the whim, I'm at my own whim, right? Um, and I'm not, um, I'm not out there trying to serve another master. However, however, I will say that a good deal of Sun Lux material um, has its origins in other projects and um, especially early on it was dance it was scores for dance that were where I could allow concepts to germinate and uh, provided me a sort of um, an excuse to get more experimental with my palette and like explore the potential of actually very humble tools um, and develop an ethos around actual actually exploring very small amounts of sound and mining small amounts of material for uh, its potential and 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 it's it's actually in that context that I developed an aesthetic around uh, for the Sunlux project um, in fact the first Sunlux record I didn't even know I was making an album I was just doing what what I wanted to when I had time to do it and then at some point I realized, oh, I think I'm making a record. Um, and then, uh, you know, rest is history. But um, it's, so it's in, so I'm in, so Sunlux is indebted to scoring, but it's also free from it. And yeah, so, and, and I'm not really sure if there's a clear delineation um, other than the end goal being, you know, that when I'm making Sunlux records, I'm, I'm following my own whims, and in the case of you know the band, um, our own whims. Nowadays, with Sunlux, everything is mutually vetted, so we don't we don't really go off into our own worlds uh, without, and and we don't return you know <laughs> without um, getting the blessing of of all involved. It's nice to have that collaboration and that sort of feedback, um, which is different from you scoring by yourself. So that's that's probably another mm-hmm. another ten mm-hmm. benefit. And uh, I imagine a welcome that's, one that's if right. you have both. You know. Yeah, that's right. And now, and and the reason why I welcomed Rafiq and Ian into like 
into the project and altered the very identity of the of the of Sunlux from being a solo project to being a band is that I recognized the profound basically in the face of their beautiful talents um, and their enormous potential um, I recognized my own limitations and very selfishly realized that these guys could help me be uh, more the musician I want to be. I can glean things from them that I, I'm not going to be able. I can accomplish things creatively that I'm not going to that are in my heart to accomplish, but I'm not going to be able to do on my own. Um, so, um, I, I truly, I mean, say without reservation that I was, I was thinking very selfishly <laughs> when I um, asked them to join, uh, knowing that I would, I would s certainly gain uh, more than I, I would would give up that's great insight on your part so when you hear the earlier records that you've made um you know what what mm -hmm. do you hear now yeah that's a really good question um it's funny we were just on a text thread answering like another uh interviewer's questions uh, and one of the questions was like if no one has ever heard sunlux before um each of you tell me like the one song you want them to start with, right? Um, and it's an it's 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 an interesting question, but it for a number on a number for a number of reasons. But I we were just thinking back through the entire discography, right? And so I was like actually thinking about some of that earlier earlier stuff, what stuff I'm like most proud of, and what stuff I like. Is there anything that kind of makes me kind of cringe or whatever um and yeah i can i can definitely say i'm i'm uh, while i've i know that i've evolved and i've i've matured and um i am actually really proud of the entire discography um i i hear um i still hear things in the very earliest records that i've never heard anywhere else on any other records um i've also heard my what I think is maybe my influence on other artists in the early records that I'm hearing now in music that, you know, 10 years ago I was doing on that first record or something, you know. And I'm not sure there's a direct influence there, but I but I do hear, I, <laughs> I hear things now that I'm like, yeah, that's what I was, that's, those are the kinds of sounds I was going for back then, you know. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I, I mean, it, it's I, I recognize that it sounds arrogant to say, but 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 it's it is part of what makes me proud of those records, which is that I I don't feel like they sound dated, and I feel like they 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 sound in in some ways like I can hear their relevance in what is in the current landscape of of music. Yeah. Um. So, um. But I you know but I mostly I hear the limitation of my vocal instrument. Um, um, I still hear a lot, a lot of wild creativity in the programming and, and a sort of like dexterous um, investigation of sound. Um, and it's, I'm also, it's also challenging to me, to like my 2020 self when I hear, you know, my 2006 self, like on, on my first record, which was at 2008, but I, I was making it as early as late 2004. Um, 
I I hear ideas where I'm like, oh, I'm like, damn, that's that's a that is a really creative idea, you know, like it's like really subtle stuff or whatever. But I'll I'll kind of remember, oh yeah, that's right, I did do that. Like I did, I, that was a pain in the ass to do. Um, it took me like hours and hours, and it's like it, you know, comprises a total of like three seconds on this one track. But man, it's a cool idea. It's very creative. Am I still that patient with my with my process? Am I still willing to experiment in in that way? And so, I still hear some really great stuff um but i i do hear probably most um like uh most of the development in in my in my voice and the way that i've i've learned how to use my voice and i think uh, the the biggest i took a i took a leap um once i started touring and i have ian and rafiq to thank for that too just like being a being the band that I needed to, to, to take, to finally take, um, my music to the stage in a serious way. Um, the project officially began in March of 2008 with the release of War with Walls and Mazes, but I didn't go on the road until January of 2014, um, with these guys. Um, so for seven years I was, you know, just, you know, singing into a microphone quietly, um, never really challenging myself because not, I didn't really know how to. And suddenly I'm on stage in front of hundreds and sometimes thousands of people earlier on and already like um like right out of the gate realizing that my voice was evolving on stage um in response to that environment um and then i've learned how to kind of do some of the things that i've done learned how to do on stage i'm, I'm starting to i i've slowly started to um l allow to influence my my approach in the studio awesome man well yeah i really enjoyed speaking with you thanks man yeah you too thanks for listening find us online at tapeop.com facebook twitter and instagram until next time